Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, proud fundraiser from my time working for Alzheimer's Research UK, now the charities lead at London Marathon Events where I get to work with thousands of brilliant and amazing charities, father of three football-obsessed children and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do More Good Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Okay, here we are, James, back again for another episode of the Do More Good podcast, episode 84. How are you doing? Kenneth. Very well, very well. We are recording the day after Halloween. We are. It looks like you haven't. You haven't fully got your makeup off. What did you? What were you going as yesterday? <laughs> this is just how I normally look. But I did. <laughs> I, I did actually dress up last night to go out trick or treating with the kids. A trip to the local Poundland seemed to do me well. Yeah, and yeah, scared a few of them at the door. So nice. everything achieved. Nice. Yeah. And you were just saying off air that you um, you gave a bit of a kind of tales from the local area the haunted tales well i think i think ghost stories have been a bit lost in recent years so as i was walking around the village with my uh eight-year-old boy and, and a few of his mates i decided to kind of bring in a few tales or make up a few tales of uh, scary characters and individuals that lived in different houses all completely fabricated although there is <laughs> one house at the end of my road that had when we first moved to the village probably 10 15 years ago there was a few ladies of the night used to reside in there. So ah. I didn't quite go into the details, but, <laughs> you know, I spun them this story. Uh, so hopefully they'll remember a few of those for years to come. But no, it was good fun. It was good fun nice. getting out. Although too many sweets, too many sweets oh, already. They, yeah, they love it, don't they? Or is it they you? Love... Are you talking about yourself? Yeah, you, me too. You, yeah. You're overindulged. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And we'll be doing for, for weeks going on. What about you? Did yeah. you head out? Yeah, we did. We did. Um, it's a big thing around here. Like there's lots of schools, so loads of kids out all scaring each other. I don't think there was anyone actually in. So everyone's knocking on the doors, but everybody else is actually out swapping stuff. It was it was good. The adults in our group had smuggled out a couple of bottles of wine. So so we were quite happy just strolling around the streets. Yeah. Street so, drinking, street drinking. Exactly. Yeah, but no ghost stories, unfortunately. So oh well. I'll have to relay a few of those to you later. But look, we're gonna have get on with our, our guest is patiently waiting. Before we do that, theme of a bit of today's show. What's your favourite confectionery? Well, you asked me this question earlier. I'm a fan of the Jammy Dodger. I've got a bit of a thing about a Jammy Dodger. I like a Snickers. Spoiler alert, that might change over the next hour or so. I also, I don't, like, I don't mind the bounty. I don't mind them. I no. know that's controversial. But I, I don't particularly love them. I don't particularly hate them. But I would say there is a new block on the block. So in doing some research for this, my wife has become obsessed. And now she won't have anything but our guests well our guest will tell us more about it i don't want to don't want to ruin it before the intro how about you i like a bounty actually yeah. i think uh yeah I, I'm, I'm always pleased when you go around to someone's house at christmas and then the the, the confectionery is still there and the bounties are the only ones left i'm happy in that place but for me it's a turkish delight oh so sophisticated i know who'd have thought it eh? <laughs> who'd have thought it my my mother-in-law now buys them in bulk and every time she comes down she she just slips me a few oh, oh i bought these for you so yeah oh. she looks after me but anyway look let's let's crack on so gonna do the intro for our guest so our guest this week started his career in the food and drink industry over 20 years ago in a mixture of sales and a category management roles for some of the biggest companies in the sector. He then joined Innocent Drinks in 2007 and was there for eight years, holding a number of senior commercial roles and helping build the UK business that was eventually sold to Coca-Cola in 2013 for half a billion pounds. He left in 2015 to join Proper Snacks, most recently as Chief Operating Officer helping take the business from a startup to an SME and international distribution. He then took on his current role with Tony's Chocolonely, the infamous confectionery brand in September 2018 as employee number one and is responsible for the UK and Ireland. His official job title, which is the best job title we have come across, is Lord Chocolonely the Third. 
And Tony's Chocolonely's mission is to make chocolate free of child labor and slavery, not just their own chocolate, but all chocolate worldwide. They're an impact company that makes chocolate and exists to drive awareness of the unequal nature of the cocoa industry, leading the way with delicious tasting chocolate and a very different business model. For them, profit is never a goal, but a means to achieving a goal. They've been around for 15 years in their home country of the Netherlands, where they are now the number one brand with a 20% market share. And Tony's launched in the UK in January 2019 and already are the sixth biggest chocolate bar brand and the fastest growing. So we're really pleased to welcome Ben Greensmith to the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing, Ben? I'm very well, thanks. What, what an intro. Uh, certainly some controversial choices in, in confectionery and chocolate, but we've got a bit of time to hopefully change that. I feel like we're going to get a lesson here. It's going to be good. I'm yeah. definitely not going to give you a lesson, but um, yeah, no, I mean, what, what, what a Lord Chocolonely the Third, what a job title. My son thinks I've the best job in the world. And that title, I think he thinks, yeah, definitely tops it. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Were you, uh, were you out pounding the streets last night, spreading the good word? No, we weren't. We've just come back from a week in Broadstairs in Kent. So we've recently got a dog and, and with COVID and everything, the pandemic, our holidays have changed a bit. So I think this is our kind of third staycation in the last year. Yeah, so we got back quite late. So my son was desperate to go, but we just didn't have the time. Yeah. All the costumes, all the inkling to get out at that time. So yeah, he's 11 now. So I don't know if, I don't know how much more this is it. This is yeah. My daughter's eleven. She went actually dressed out in a uh, inflatable sumo suit last night, which actually she's not the most out there uh, character, but she got loads of attention because she was hobbling around the street dressed in this big sumo suit. But yeah, she's eleven, and I have to say we passed some of her boyfriends uh, as we were going out, and they looked like they were probably robbing things rather than (laughs) trick or treating. So uh, maybe you can get away with with one more year, but who knows? But look, Ben, thank you for joining us. I mean, we should give you some. Context to your your invitation to come on. We were talking to a a friend of the show, Puff Story, who introduced us. I think you'd met her maybe a couple of years ago. She told us about your background and the story of the of the brand and what it stood for. And she said you have to get him on. They've got a great story. And I think since then, since she mentioned it, I've seen the brand everywhere. You know, I think once it's pinned in your mind, you see it in a lot more places, which is which is great. You know, we want to go back a little bit to your early career. You've been around the kind of food and drink industry for a number of years. Can you just talk us through your career journey to this day and what got you to kind of Lord Chocolonely the third? I've been working now in food and drink for 21 years. So that's, I was trying to work out, I'm probably halfway through my career. So I think that's, I don't know if that's good or if that's depressing. I think I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of on the, I'm on the downhill slope now. So I think that's good. But I started off kind of coming out of uni, not really knowing what I wanted to do and thought I wanted to do marketing. Didn't really know what marketing was. And I ended up working at Unilever, dealing with data and looking at markets and trying to work out what the brand should do to, to basically sell more and make more, which was great. And, you know, my, my, my dad thought this was the, the best thing in the world. You know, it was a big blue chip, final salary pension. Everyone had heard of it. Um, and it was great. I got some seriously good training there. I was there for about, I think, four or five years. I met my wife there. We're still married, so that's that's good. But I kind of got to the stage where there was this thing in the background which just kept coming up, which was Innocent Drinks, and it was the place that everyone wanted to be at the time. This is back in 2007 now. And I got a chance to to basically go and work there, and it was just the, the best thing that I ever did because I learned so much so quickly and worked with some, I think, some of the best minds in food and drink. And the three founders, Rich, Adam and John, so inspirational. That became a bit of a breeding ground for people who who then went on to do other things and start their own businesses. And it was brilliant. Just fantastic seven or eight years. And we built the business in the UK. Uh, when I joined, I think, the UK business, we were turning over 40 or 50 million. And when when I left, we were doing 150 million in the UK and probably about the same in, in Europe. Oh, sorry, a lot less in Europe. Now they're doing more in Europe than they are in the UK. And yeah, we built the business. We sold it to Coca-Cola for half a billion. And I stuck around purely selfishly for a couple of years after that to get that experience of a transition and a change on my CV. But working for 
Coca-Cola was never, it's not what drives me. It's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. The reason I went to Innocent was that it was a slightly different business model and there was a, they were doing a lot of good compared to other businesses. And so I stuck around for two years after that sale and then didn't really know where I wanted to go. And so I went to like a startup called Proper and helped build that into, take that from, I think, 5 million to maybe 13 million in the UK in international distribution. But the dream for me, and my wife reminded me of this just after, when I started working at Tony's, when I was on business with Proper and I went to Amsterdam because I was, I was running the international business as well. And we had a, we had a distributor out in Amsterdam in, in the Netherlands. And I went out and I just, I, f- I saw Tony's everywhere. And that's where Tony's has been. We've been going for 15 years now. And I just fell in love with the brand and the packaging. I couldn't, can't speak a word of Dutch. So I bought a stack full of bars back to my wife and, and son, Archie. And I was just like, you've got to try this. This is just, it's just delicious. And doesn't it look great? And you open it and it's the big chunky bars and it's unequally divided. And then I started reading about the mission and, and, and I was just like, wow, this is just, this is just everything that a business should be. It's a delicious product. It tastes good. It looks good. And ultimately it, it does good. And we'll probably come on to that a little bit later. And I said, if ever Tony's comes to the UK, then I've got to be a part of it. And if they don't, then we'll rip it off and we'll do a version of it and we'll bring some good to the UK. Um, and then literally about a year later, stuff fell into place. And a friend of mine said, Tony's has come to the UK. You, you kind of need to get involved. And so I dropped a message to Henk Yan, who's, who's my boss now and was is the major shareholder in, in Tony's and basically built, helped build the business in the Netherlands and just said, look, I hear you come to the UK. Let me head it up. And the rest is, is history. And I love it. It's the best thing to be able to come to work and do what I think I'm good at and ultimately have a reason to get out of bed, which isn't just making a load of money for shareholders. Ultimately, we're helping people who are currently being exploited in West Africa and we're doing it through delicious chocolate and showing that there is a different way to make delicious chocolate. That's, I mean, that's great. It's just the best, the best thing. I never thought I'd capture what I had at Innocent. Again, I thought maybe it's a life stage. It's a a time in my life. It's pre-kids, but even more so at Tony's, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And I'll tell you a little bit, you know, about the mission and why we exist. And I think when you put all that together, it's, it's a truly special, special business. Before we get onto Tony's and we are going to talk about, all of that that good that you're, you're doing there that move to innocent they were that they were the kind of the cool kids in the early noughties I remember hearing about them there I think I applied for a job with oh, obviously wasn't cool enough I think I applied <laughs> for a job with them they were definitely making a big noise was it the and I think you said this it was the kind of social good aspect of what they were doing that really attracted you to them do you feel it's, like that changed when it went to coca-cola or was it still the same company, but for you, it was a bit different? Fundamentally, the, the, the model, what they do, the 10% of profits to charity every year, helping, having a, they have a separate foundation, which is set up to help communities where they source their, their fruit. None of that has changed. And I suppose the jury's out, is fruit good for you or not? Yes, fruit is very good for you, but you're better off eating it or drinking it. I think fundamentally, people need to eat more fruit, right? And I think Innocent is a is a great business and I think they definitely were early pioneers in trying to show that actually business can do good and it isn't just about exploiting and it's not just about profit at any cost and actual people come really high up on the agenda that hasn't changed I think if anything they've grown and they're they're helping more people they're selling more fruit and that that's a good thing the thing that didn't sit fantastically with me is that coke element and that, you know, Coke being the major shareholder. Mm-hmm. So Innocent is still a fantastic business. But for me personally, that didn't sit as part of my, you know, I'm, I want to be proud. And if I'm going to work in for another 20 years, I want to look back and I want to say to, you know, my, my son, I've only got one, you know, and I want him to look and think, yeah, you know what, my dad, yeah, he was good at what he did and he, and he made a positive impact on the world. And I think hand on heart, could I do that? If I stayed there, honestly, this is me being totally honest, not if I'm helping bankroll something like Coca-Cola. No, that's a good point. I just want to pick up on something you, you touched on there, Ben, about, you know, we've seen a lot of consumer brands 
I guess, now start to talk and market themselves as charities almost, talk a lot more about the impact they're having. I touched on it there. Innocent had that very much, that message was part of that brand. I guess I'm just wondering, thinking back, and maybe Innocent was this example, but when have you? when did you first notice that kind of language that type of messaging being used in the in the field of kind of food and drink to, to kind of really promote a market a business and a brand yeah i think i think innocent was certainly the, the pioneers of it i think it's been going on now people have been talking about purpose in some way shape or form for the last really probably in earnest 10 to 10 years mm. um but i think that it there's a lot of there's a lot of companies out there who are trying to find a purpose and use that purpose to drive their marketing. And, and that's not right. What we say at Tony's is we are, we're not a chocolate company. We're an impact company that makes chocolate. So for us, everything that we do is that purpose. That purpose then becomes everything. Our marketing is our purpose because it's, it's why it's the very reason that we exist. But I would say the last kind of five, six years, you, I've, you see more and more of it. In a way, it's good. I think what's really challenging is it's tough for consumers mm. to cut through effectively all the crap that's out there to get to, to those, those brands and businesses that genuinely are trying to, to make the world a better place. You talk about companies coming in and doing that, and you look at Ben and Jerry's talk about that, that actually they're not an ice cream company. They're trying to change the world. And you say, yeah, it's difficult for consumers to see through that. Presumably, you see through that and you can see... Is that frustrating for you when you see companies coming in and not doing it authentically? Uh, yeah, it is. And I think, you know, I, I probably didn't have a real awareness of it. And I, I mean, certainly if you look at Coco, three and a half, four years ago, I had I was blissfully unaware of these issues. And then the more I learn about it, then the more it upsets me and it does infuriate me. But it is, it can be quite category specific but these problems that exist in coco for example that i've now got a great awareness of, you know i'm really passionate about trying to change exactly the same thing it's the same thing in fashion it's the same thing in coffee so yes i think it tends to be the and it tends to be the the, the big businesses effectively are greenwashing and not necessarily backing up their promises mm. the confectionery industry has often been criticized for, for some of those alarming conditions that I'm sure you'll tell us more about West Africa, which is one of the largest uh, regions to, to produce cocoa. But Tony's has got a real, that was kind of one of the problems that it saw. Can you tell us about the how the company back began, what, what its aims were from kind of day one to really combat that human impact that the cocoa industry has? Whenever I talk about Tony's, I call it this is a story of an unusual chocolate bar. So you'll have to definitely bear with me a little bit on this because we never, Tony's never started it. The, the whole, the, the very bar, the red bar started accidentally off the back of a TV program. And um, so it's a, it's a bit of a crazy story, but I don't know if you or your listeners have ever really thought about Coco and where Coco comes from, but you've got to think of the Coco industry as a bit of an kind of like an hourglass on its side, where on one side you've got uh, billions of consumers who love eating cocoa and don't really think about where it comes from. On the other side, you've got most of the world's cocoa actually coming from West Africa. So more than two thirds of the world's cocoa comes from West Africa and over 60% from two countries, Ghana and the Ivory Coast. And there you've got millions of smallholder farms, family, family farms basically, with two or three football pitches of a farm each. So that's kind of like two sides of hourglass. And in the middle, the pinch point is you've got a handful of big chocolate companies and producers. So these are the producers that you might not have heard of, Barry Calabau, Cargill, Olam. And then you've got brand owners like Mondelez, so Cabris, Mars, Nestle, Hershey, and Ferrero, and Lint. And those kind of seven or eight companies control about 95% of all of the world's cocoa that's traded. And they keep the price of cocoa as low as possible so they can make as much money as possible. And that leads to massive structural problems. So today you've got 60% of the world's cocoa coming from Ivory Coast and the Ghana. And there you've got two and a half million farms. Now on those farms, there are 1.56 million children who are working on those cocoa farms today, right? Over one and a half million kids. Now, 
if those kids and these are kids kind of you know our kids age 11 12 if they are helping their folks out after after school then that's not a problem right a lot of people do that in family businesses help their their folks their grandparents out but 95 percent of them so nearly one and a half million children are working under illegal conditions so these are kids who are carrying heavy loads they're exposed to pesticides they're working with machetes and effectively because their parents are so poor they're having to take them out of school and they're denied an education um, and then in the worst cases you've got a minimum of 30,000 who are effectively sold and trafficked as slaves and they're taken from neighboring countries like Burkina Faso and they're sold for a, a few thousand dollars and then they're kept and held against their will and if they try to escape from those farms then they're beaten or, or killed and we're like wow that's like this is 2021 right and this is this is still going on in the cocoa value chain so we're like okay that's that's and anyone thinking that right and i've heard that that's not right so back in 2001 there was a two congressmen in the u.s one called harkin and one called engel and they basically thought right if we've got a handful of these chocolate companies who control all of the buying and procurement of the world's cocoa, then we can solve this, right? Because we will get the directors of those companies, seven or eight companies, and we'll get them around a table and we can get them to agree to eradicate slavery and child labor from their parts of the value chain. And that's exactly what they did. And this is called the Harkin Engel Protocol. And you can go online and you can see that in black and white, all the signatories, and it's known as a chocolate protocol. And, and so that happened back in 2001. And with, they committed that within 10 years, they would eradicate slavery and child labor from their parts of the value chain. Now, four years later, back in 2004, 2005, there, were, there was a TV program in the Netherlands called Curing Dienst van Varda, which basically is food unwrapped uh, or food uncovered. And it was an investigative journalist program. And there were three journalists on there. And one of them was called Tony, or actually his name's Turn, Turn van der Kirken, which basically means Tony of the kitchen. Tony was leafing through the Sunday papers one day and he came across these problems on page eight. He, well, two things struck him. He was like, one, as I just said, how come, why is this still happening? This is nearly 15 years ago, but why is this happening in, in effectively the noughties? This, this shouldn't be happening. And, and then secondly, why the hell is this on page eight? Why isn't this front page news? Because I, I wasn't aware of this. Everyone should know about this. So he just, they decided, these three Dutch journalists, that, right, we're going to do a program on cocoa. So Tony tried to speak to all the chocolate companies. He found this Harkin Engel protocol, and he found that we were halfway through it. And he was like, right, I'm going to speak to Nestle and Mars, and, and I'm going to find out what they're doing about it. So he, he tried to speak to them, and he said, what progress are you making in terms of ridding slavery and child labor from the, from the value chain, what's going on? And basically no one would talk to him. And they said, it's too complicated. We can't do anything about it. So they're not basically taking responsibility. So, so Tony then, as part of this program, he, he, he filmed himself eating a load of cocoa that basically through the chocolate bars of these big companies, he bought like a dozen chocolate bars and he filmed himself eating them. And then he phoned the police and said, look, I'm I know there's a problem with slavery and child labor. I'm pretty sure there's some forced labor in this cocoa and this chocolate that I'm eating. I'm a chocolate criminal. You've got to come and arrest me because I'm basically financing slavery and child labor. They hung up on him. He then decided that he'd take matters even a stage further. So he basically hired a lawyer and he prosecuted himself for the same crime, basically. So he tried to send himself to jail. And he, he flew out to West Africa and he met four boys who had been formerly or former child slaves uh, on cocoa farms. And he got them to testify against him. And he flew one of them back into Amsterdam and basically prosecuted himself. And uh, the trial went on for, for the same crime, for financing, knowingly financing slavery and child labor by eating the cocoa. So he's part of the problem. The, the court case went on for two years. He didn't go to jail, but at the end of the trial, the judge said to him, look, turn, Tony, what, morally you're right, but I can't send you to jail because I cannot draw a link between the cocoa that you've eaten and the cocoa that these boys who have testified against you have, have basically been forced to produce. And also, 
if I send you to jail, it's going to set a terrible precedent for everyone else in the Netherlands. So, but you've got a point. So off the back of it, Tony basically created 5,000 bars. Everything else in milk chocolate at the time was, was blue or kind of purple. And he, he created this bright red wrapper and he stuck the name Tony, Tony, because it was his name and Tony's Chocolonely because it's chocolate. And it was his lonely battle to, to change the industry. And he did it as a PR stunt and said, hey, look, this is the world's first slave-free chocolate. Here's 5,000 bars. Here's a PR stunt. And they sold out in, um, in hours, basically. So it was at that stage we took the decision that, look, if we're really serious about changing the cocoa industry, from the best way to do it is from within. So by showing that there's a different business model, a different way to make even better tasting chocolate that doesn't involve exploitation, that involves paying more, 100% traceability, our five sourcing principles. And that's how Tony's basically started. So that's why I call it the story of an unusual chocolate bar. And then from that point, our aim is to grow so much that we spread the word and we make it so uncomfortable for those big companies to keep doing what they're doing because by getting more bars into people's hands, we're spreading awareness and then consumers and listeners and shareholders and retailers are more educated and then people can make a more informed choice. And so um, that is how Tony started. And now we're turning over. We just closed our books. We'll, t- we'll do just over 100 million euros this year. About 60% of that is in the Netherlands. But our aim is to basically take the UK, the US, Germany, all those big chocolate eating nations by storm, and do exactly what we've done in the Netherlands, where we've become number one, so that we grow. And basically, we help more farmers, we drive more awareness. And ultimately, we want other companies to copy what we're doing. So that that becomes the industry norm. So that's why I say it's a long story. That's the story of an unusual chocolate bar and the story of Tony's Chocolonely and, and how we started and I suppose ultimately why we exist. Wow. What a story. Yeah. That's a, it's, a, it's amazing. I get so many questions in there, but I guess the first one that jumps to mind, Ben, is how have the other major manufacturers, how do they respond, react to the success that you now had and will look to have in the future? Look, we, I think at the moment we are still so small, right? right? We are number one in the Netherlands, but the Netherlands is a country with 17 million people. So if you look at how, how much of the world's a cocoa we account for, I reckon just some like basic math, you can, it was probably like 0.2%. So we're still, still tiny. So we're still kind of like that annoying little mosquito buzzing around their faces trying to make it difficult for them but for now it's still quite easy for them to ignore us and look there's some conversations that happen but ultimately you know kind of the way we approach it is we put focus on the consumers we talk to consumers we educate consumers ultimately those consumers can make a choice and the way to make those big companies change is is ultimately to hurt them by taking their sales and their profits away because Unfortunately, for now, that's 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 all they really care about. But we're we, we're just really getting started. The, the challenge we, we we have is that if you look at the industry and the industry problems, twenty years ago, it's exactly the same number. There were one and a half million kids working illegally on cocoa farms in West Africa. Today, one and a half million kids effectively working illegally on cocoa farms in West Africa. Nothing has changed, despite all the big commitments. So, whatever we're doing isn't working, and it's not fast enough. So. Um, yeah, but for now, I think we're quite easy to ignore, but it's my job and my team's job to, to basically change that. That's the, and that struck me as being the really the really sad part of this is chocolate is something that's typically enjoyed by children. You know, the link of creating something for kids and that is also putting one and a half million other kids into effective slavery is, that just doesn't make sense. How can those... How can those companies, you know, you talk about going to innocent because of the social good and how can you work somewhere that does that and knowingly do that? That just doesn't, doesn't fit really. But like you say, the only way to hit those people is to do so through sales and, and driving yours up and will, will, you know, you become less of a mosquito and uh, a far bigger threat to them. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Isn't it like absolutely bonkers to think that, that that's happening? I think part of the problem is it's so far away that people don't think, well, it's it's not my problem. It's not on my doorstep. And there's not that instant link with what you're buying. But 
yeah, it's uh, it is really it is really shocking, and it's a choice, right? Because the root cause of the problem is poverty. But we we say at, at Tony's that price is the key fertilizer because poverty is the root cause, and when you've got farmers and families living below the poverty line, ultimately, you know, just paying a fairer price is a massive part. Jimbo is off at the bar, which makes a change, and means I can tell you about the website, domoregood.uk. There you'll find profiles, blog posts, previous episodes, and a link to the newsletter if you fancy some VIP content in your inbox. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at domoregoodpod, plus you can find us on LinkedIn. We've even started a TikTok. Anyway, he's on his way back. Hang on a minute, are they shandies? You say at the beginning of that wonderful story about how it's too big a problem. We can't fix this. We can't, you know, there's nothing we can do. Whereas you guys seem to be doing that. And how, how yeah. do you go about it? So the, the root cause of the problems in West Africa, the root cause is poverty. So it does start with a with a higher price. So at Tony's, so effectively you have the farm gate price, which is set by the government. Um, if you look on the back of a pack of Tony's, you will see that's about just over a thousand dollars per tonne. On the back of Tony's, you'll see that we have the fair trade logo. So we then pay the fair trade premium, which is $240 a ton. And then we pay a further Tony's premium on top of that, which is about another three to $400. But actually that's going to go up because we work off a living income uh, differential. So we work backwards from what a farmer needs to live off to feed their family, basically. And we've just seen the price of cocoa has dropped by 18.5%. So what that will mean is we and we top it up, we pay more. Problem is then the big companies where all the power sits end up paying even less. So the farmers get that get poorer. So it starts with a higher price. And at the moment, someone like Tony's will probably be paying about 60 to 70% more than the farm gate price. But that's what these farmers need to be able to feed their families. And we, you're not talking about crazy money, you're talking about a fair price. We then have a fully traceable supply chain. So all of our cocoa can be tracked and traced. We know the best part of probably 10,000 farmers that we work with across seven or eight cooperatives. And that's really important because only if you understand where your cocoa is, is coming from and the conditions under which it's grown, can you really take responsibility for it? And that's important. Most of the world's cocoa is traded mass balance. So it comes from a big faceless pile. And that enables the big companies to basically pick from it and say, well, it's not my problem because I don't own that part of the value chain, but we don't think that's right. And we've, we've proven that you can have a fully traceable supply chain in West Africa. We then only work with co-ops. So these, these are our five sourcing principles. They're the first two. The third area is um, we work with strong farmers. So we, we, we only work with co-ops because those co-ops are, are more empowered and they're stronger together. With those co-ops, the fourth area is that we, we have five-year agreements. So any co-op that we work with is... They can leave whenever they want. No one's ever left us. But what, what that means is those farmers and those co-ops know that they're going to get a better deal for their cocoa for the next five years. So they can plan and invest in their futures and their farms and their livelihoods. And then the fifth area is we help them with more modern farming practices and yields, but also help them to diversify so that if anything ever does go wrong in cocoa, they've got a bit, bit of a buffer there. So those are the five sourcing principles. And what we say to other companies is, this is how you do it. This is what we've been doing for the last 15 years. Copy us. We don't care, right? We want you to copy that. So we will help you copy that. Because only if you copy that, can we really change the industry. Because we can't do this alone. So that's why we need to, we need to be these kind of activists. And we need to be outspoken. And, and we need to tell the truth and say it how it is. But also, at the same time, we kind of need those companies to come with us. Because that's where the power sits. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I'm interested, Ben, just in, in regards to the consumer. And obviously, it's a, you just need to go on your website. And obviously, we do do a little bit of research before these. The, the purpose of your brand, that story is very much front and center of what you stand for. It's You just have to go to the website and, and look at it. And you can read the backstory, which I thought was really interesting and very well. But I'm just one, interested in how this lands with the consumer. I mean, you also talked about having the, the, the best tasting chocolate but you've got this great purpose-led message behind. How do you, how does that manifest itself when you when you look at the consumer and, and that choice that they have when they're deciding which chocolate they're buying for, for little Johnny? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And actually, we haven't traditionally spent on 
any above the line media so because we can't compete on those big budgets so everything that we've relied upon really is 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 getting those bars into people's hands and them then telling you the story and actually if you if you look at the data 89% of people buy tonys because they either love the look of it or the taste of it so only 11% are buying us solely for that mission so we rely really really heavily on just having the most beautiful product out there the you know the great packaging that sings from the shelves that's a different shape that's a bit thicker and that drawing people in and then people come in and hopefully they pick up the bar they read a little bit bit about it they're a bit inquisitive they get it home they unwrap it the bar's unequally divided and the bar is unequally divided because it tells the story of the unequal nature of the cocoa industry so that's why we make the bar unequally divided because the bar tells the story in itself and as long as the cocoa industry is unequal we will continue to make unequal bar bars and it annoys people and it, you look at the reviews on Ocado and it's people still so we've got a big job to do to still tell people why we're doing it because that's the very reason that we exist but we rely really on that sucking people in and then mm. them learning about it we try it's really difficult you try not to be too preachy and because uh, otherwise that can switch people off and they, they think if you've got a great mission it's going to be really worthy and not a great tasting product but actually we want to go the other way around and because because ultimately it's about showing that there's a different way to make chocolate and so we start we put the focus on getting those bars into people's hands and that that's that's been a big part of our, our plans and strategy in the uk which is just get those bars into people's hands tell them a little bit about the story get them to do their homework and hopefully they'll start to to spread that and that's how we create a bit more of a movement i'm just interested I guess based on the start of this conversation where we were talking about innocent and, you know, James and I's background is in, is in the charity sector. And a lot of our listeners are in the charity sector where, you know, calls and beneficiaries is very much as the front and center of our thinking around everything, you know, product development, fundraising, obviously is all about what impact are we having from a consumer point of view? Do you think that the current approach that you have, which is obviously all about the taste of the chocolate, the, the look of the chocolate, get it in someone's hands, then we can tell them the story. Can you ever see that flipping? Maybe we're looking five, 10 years in the future where actually brands are much more forthright about their, their, their social impact and maybe the product is just a given? Wow, yeah, I, I hope so. I mm. hope. I don't see it happening in that timescale because okay. I think it's been talked about too much and not enough is happening. And I think we'll continue to... We'll continue to see those big, and it's the big companies, right? We'll continue to see those big companies continue to get away with it for as long as they can. So actually, I think it's going to take an awful lot of consumer pressure and some probably governmental legislation to change the way these companies act and behave. But we want to exist to change, right? That's why, mm. that's why we exist. So maybe I'm being naive, but we've, I think we've got, to, we've got to believe that we can, we can make a change. Yeah. Just moving the conversation on a little bit from, from the great backstory and, and the product, I'm just interested in the organisation and, and the culture. I mean, you spoke at the start about, you know, you've never been so excited. You feel proud of what you're doing every day that you actually can get out of bed in the morning and you know that not only are you selling great, amazing tasting chocolate, but, you know, you're also having a positive impact to change the world. How does that message manifest itself in in the culture and your staff and the employees of the organization we i've never i've never had such an engaged or motivated team wow like firstly um we're a small team in the uk i think we are now up to 15 but the kind of level of commitment we measure this regularly as well as a business and and the engagement and commitment to to the mission is is just so so strong you can see it does drive you harder. People do work a bit harder and you've got to watch that, right? Because you can burn out a bit quicker as well. If yeah. you're just, just so driven and so focused and there's so much unfairness that you, you want to change. But I suppose to offset that, what we do as a business is we try and have like one of the best benefits package out there. So we, because only if we have, we think, you know, you've got the best people and they're the most engaged and they're firing on all cylinders when they come to work, can we stand a chance of changing things? So we have, Everyone in, in our business gets two and a half thousand pounds to spend a year on their personal development. We all try and go away once a year when pandemic permitting to, to spend a bit of time. You know, there's a couple of hundred Tonys and we'll 
we'll, we'll go off site somewhere and I know go to Austria or something and just get together and, and catch up and have a few beers and talk about some of the plans we want to change. We have a baby. A lot of companies don't want you to have kids. We, we actively encourage it. So we think <laughs> how if, does that manifest itself <laughs> yeah no yeah, no it's not yeah so we have a baby bonus i don't yeah i don't think if you uh, it's a thousand um it's a thousand dollars for every we call them tiny tonys if you have a tiny tony um but no one's actually we haven't had two people and get, get the two thousand bonus so um <laughs> but if we also say if you have a baby and call it tony we'll give you five thousand um, pounds <laughs> Every day that you come to work in the office, you can take as much chocolate as you can physically carry each and every day in your bag. But to offset that, because chocolate is bad for you, right? We know that. We don't want people eating too much chocolate. We just want them to make a more informed choice. We give everyone a £100 sports bonus and a no smoking bonus as well so that they can try and stay as, as healthy as possible. It's all part of trying to just make Tony's the best place to come and develop your career, basically, and have the most fired on people. And it works. You talk about stuff like, you know, red packaging because everybody else is blue and purple, quirky cuts on the chocolate, that sort of thing. And then incredible benefits packages for people. People might not necessarily believe that that could be true. Do you get the same with the co-ops and the farmers when you turn up and talk to them? (laughs) Do they hesitate about it? We're not used to this. We're not used to being paid a fair price, let alone being paid, you know, the the Tony's top ups on top of that. Uh, I mean, no, I mean, I went out to Ivory Coast a couple of years ago and I was just overwhelmed with the sense of community that's there and everyone's just happy to see you. We're not like saviors or we're just Mm. we're just trying to be be fair. So um, it's the very least that I think these communities and and farmers, you know, deserve. You you flipped things on its head. They're the ultimately the people that you're serving and that you're trying to the person you're trying to help, not the other way around, not trying to sell a chocolate bar. Like we're really clear on what we need to, to do, right? We have three key metrics. One is that we want to grow 50% every year because that's more awareness, more cocoa, more farmers. The other is we need to make 40% gross margin. And the other thing is we want to make 4% operating profit, which isn't a massive amount for a branded business. But if we can, if we can broadly do those things, we can run our business and have as much impact as possible. Mm. Those are kind of like the really basic metrics that we have front and center of our, of our kind of business model. Sorry, I think that was my son just heard the words free chocolate and uh, <laughs> came in the room then. So apologies for that. I, I love how all of this has come from a guy who didn't want to set up a chocolate company. And so, in fact, wanted to spend a couple of years in prison. Uh, and he's ended up having to run a, a massive company. And I mean, how does he talk about it? Because this is ultimately what he wanted to achieve and now he's running this massively successful organization well no so tony is tony's still involved in the business because he he was the the guy who was best on camera so he gave his name to it but he didn't actually found the business um that was maurice who was one of the other journalists and then hank yan our chief chocolate officer basically um back in about 2012 took the impact side and said guys i can it was i think we were probably doing about a million euros back then it was like the business model's not right combine the two and you can have more impact and so that's kind of what really exploded the business which was that kind of strong distribution awareness strategy helping more farmers with the impact model central and i think that's i mean to your question earlier i kind of went off on a bit of a tangent but that's why we're not we're not a charity or an ngo it's it's about showing that what we're doing is scalable because mm. That's how we're going to change the industry by getting all those big companies to come on board with us. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how it how it started. But it was only really maybe 20, 2012 that it really took off in the Netherlands and, and went up to, I think, number one two years ago when we overtook Cadbury or Milka over there. Amazing. It's such a fascinating and interesting business. And, you know, congratulations to you and the team and wish you continued success. And I'm sure hopefully anyone listening to this will will make that decision when they're standing at the checkout thinking about which chocolate bar they, they buy for their Saturday night movie and, and, and you know, make the right decision. Before you, we let you go, I just wanted to kind of a final question about your hopes for the future in terms of the brand, but also adding on to that, whether the operation that you guys have built and developed and, you know, you've disrupted a very traditional business and a supply chain that's existed for, for decades, could or do you discuss maybe applying that to a different 
product and sector? And also then, what's what's your hopes for the future in terms of the brand? There are loads of similarities with a number of different industries. I mean, coffee is the one that's probably most pertinent. And I think what we're doing, there are other companies like Cafe Direct who are doing similar kind of things, but slight, slightly different nuances. So definitely, I mean, for, for us, though, 100 percent, the, the only thing only thing we focus on is is West Africa because um, where the problems are and it's cocoa. And I think that what's really interesting is that then it just keeps you really, really focused because mm. that's why we exist. But yeah. There are other industries, but we've got such a big job that I'd, I'd love to say, yeah, we'll, we're going to go and sort something else out next. But like, if we can sort this in 10 years, I'll, I'll, I'll be over the moon. And, and then kind of linked to, to that and your, your question around where next? Well, in the UK, we have to get to a top five brand to really be in the faces of, I suppose, the consumers, the mouths of the consumers, all the places, all the touch points that you can buy, all those big chocolate brands. So that would mean revenues of over 120 to 30 million. And that would mean that we're the same size as Lint. This year in the UK, we probably did 18 million. So two years in, we're well on that path. We're only in Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Accardo. We've just launched in Tesco's co-op. So there's so much more space for us. There's so many more categories for us to go into. Mm. But that that is the hope and ambition for the, for the brand. Top, top five in all of the major markets that we're in hard to ignore and ultimately we don't stop until those big chocolate companies have changed what they're doing so we'll get them on board and that open chain sourcing policy that we have i'm really pleased to say that aldi are now sourcing their own label for their chocolate through that the choco changer and also um, albert hein as well which is the number one retailer in the netherlands uh, adopted it for their their own label a couple of years ago so now we've got about 50% 50% of the total volume that we source on top of the volume that we source that's coming from open chain as well. So that will continue to grow. That's what we want. You talk about your three pillars and that's your third one, isn't it? Inspiring others to act. And follow it is indeed, yeah. 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 <laughs> what I've loved about this, you are talking about massive challenges, huge frustrations, terrible things that are going in the world. And yet you clearly absolutely love your job. You've done this whole chat with a big smile on your face talking about what you do. Yeah, I mean, look, it's... I'm, we're, everyone at Tony's is so passionate about changing things. I think it's if if the reality is is bloody depressing, but mm. ultimately there is a solution there. So you've got to remain positive. It's a choice, right? And we've all got choices. And every 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 time that we spend a little bit of money or we make a choice at the fixtures at the checkouts, it's a vote for the, the type of world we want to live in. So we've all got choices. Nice. Great, great wrap up point there. Thank you so much, Ben. Well, look, we will wrap it up. We're not going to let you go quite yet because we have a couple of quick fire questions that we always drop into the end of our podcast. But just to say, you know, thank you again for for sharing that story. And, and I'm sure our listeners will find it as interesting. And yeah, as James said, I think you just... It really, the authenticity really comes across. James is smirking away there. I'm what smiling you because Ben's smile has gone. With the mention of quickfire questions, the smile <laughs> just disappeared. No, suddenly, oh, you picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're pretty. They're pretty tame. Okay, if you could transport yourself back in time and meet your 20 year old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? Just be yourself. I think I probably spent too long in the middle stage of my career trying to work out what what I was doing and what type of leader I wanted to be. And I think it just um yeah, actually just authenticity, I think, as a you know, as a person, as a leader, standing up for what you believe in is is the most important thing. Nice. Second question for you. Can you tell us about one life hack, productivity tool, a habit or a skill that you have taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? um is it a life what have i done truth do you know i is this is going to sound really boring uh middle-aged but i have just got myself in the habit of getting up at six o'clock to go to the gym for 45 minutes and it it puts me in a good mood and if i don't do it my wife kicks me out of the house (laughs) because i get really eggy and ratty so like I've, i've just i've learned that the way I work best is just get up, exercise early, and then I can just relax for the rest of the day. But that's not probably new news. No, that's great. That's great. No. Kenneth's a bit like you. 
He's always texting me at six o'clock. He's <laughs> yeah. always doing it. It's because I've not been drinking. I've been off the. I've been off yeah. no alcohol for the last two months. I've just found that I'm, you know, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I'm bang straight out, do something. It's yeah, change the game. Whether it will yeah. go on, I don't know, but we'll see. It's great though, isn't um, it? Even even a glass of wine can really disrupt your sleep pattern. I find. Yeah, so. yeah. I've been sleeping like an absolute baby. Be more Kenneth. Yeah, be more me. <laughs> <laughs> last question. As a podcast that focuses around people doing more good, what's your favourite story or aspiring individual that you've met on your journey recently who has done something good for others? Oh, gosh. Do do you know, I don't... I'm really struggling to think who who I've met. I think what I have found, though, is the amount of people who are willing who do want to do good then no one sticks out to me but the amount of people mm. that either are trying to change things through through podcasts through talks through events through charities I think I find that really inspiring and that that gives me hope but I, I struggle to to pin it on one person but if you maybe if you gave me a few more you'd probably have to give me a few more weeks to come up with someone but I think <laughs> that that kind of that that I find inspiring and that gives me hope no that's nice nice like nice. that cool well look Ben, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. We'll wrap it up there. Hopefully, James will have some uh, chocolate coming in the post to us soon. Any final send me thoughts? Your, send, you can do that, boys. Send me, send me your, send me an address, and I will get some chocolate over to you. Wonderful, because I'm about to go downstairs and throw all the kids' chocolate in the bin because I'm sure that that all comes from terrible sources. So that will keep them happy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely right. James, final thought. The only thought for me really was scribbling down the fact that I've got to take out be more Kenneth. Edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> It's been great to chat, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, Ben. If anyone wants to find anything else about the organisation or the or the great work, uh, where would you direct them to? I'll go on our website, Tony'sChocolateOnly.com, and we have absolutely everything on there, and we publish everything on there each and every year. And then you've also got our annual fair report as well, which is on there and can be downloaded. And that's all the stuff we've done, all the stuff we haven't done, and all the stuff we want to do in the future. Perfect. All right, guys. We'll wrap it up there. Take care. We'll see you soon. Cheers then. Thanks. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? If you've enjoyed this episode and you've made it this far after all and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.